So me, Alex, and Dan are here with Laura Phillips, who's a freelance writer and music journalist. I think the, the recent trend on this show has been we alternate between doing like a stupid episode and then we have an episode where we just gripe about like either the music industry or like freelance industry or whatever. So it's going to be one of those episodes where we just complain about like making money <laughs> off of art and stuff. But uh, how you doing, Laura? Hey, hi, I'm delighted to be here. Hello. I like the music industry. <laughs> I think they're doing a great job. You heard the new Maroon 5 song? They're putting out great work. <laughs> yeah, Alex, you're right. Any industry that could produce Maroon 5 can't be bad. Um, Laura, can, yeah. uh, so you're a freelance journalist, but you have been doing music journalism for how long? Like over 10 years now, right? Um, yes. Yeah, so my name is Lior. Um, I have been doing this type of work, I suppose, since about 2012, um, I think my first interview ever was Sarah Newfeld from also touring with Arcade Fire. Um, she didn't know that at the time. I didn't know what I was doing at the time. And I think it was around, yeah, 2011, 2012, but I'd been writing for a while and I was in production, uh, as an art director and, and a wardrobe stylist before that doing music videos. So I was always kind of connected in some sort of way. How did you, how did you, you, we're living in South Africa when you started, right? Yes. Um, grew up, born, lived there in Cape Town for, for my whole life. Uh, and then I moved to Tel Aviv uh, in the Middle East. I moved there in 2014 and then moved to the States two years ago. So it's kind of been a weird, like as much as freelance is nomadic in its in the format of it, like you're riding for so many different places. I was also moving around to so many different cities and countries and constant, you know, constant motion. That's, I mean, I feel like that's kind of the ideal, uh, I, I like, you know, I, I get inspiration from, from never being in the same place, but I feel like that's kind of the ideal for a, for a freelance writer because you're never going to get like a, you're never going to be in one place long enough to get a geographical bias or like an environment, right. environmental bias on what you're writing. So if you're in Tel Aviv writing about, I don't know, Yaysayer or something. <laughs> R.I.P. 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 Yaysayer. Yes, no, I definitely think, and that's always the issue that people bring up with music, right? Because when you talk about music, it isn't just about the music now. It's about everything um, in the, like, the, you know, the immediate surroundings. You have to, You have to really be informed and you have to know... You have to know the city where that music came from, which is why local journalism is so important. It's something that I've always been a, a, a huge fan of. I've been that local journal, journalist on the ground. Um, it's very odd to me when people are writing about bands, you know, that are part of that uh, kind of exterior world on the fringe, you know, outside the US and the UK. Yeah. And they're like sitting in this high rise in Times Square. So that that's that really bothers me because you do need empathy, um, and I don't think this is is really just for music. I think you need empathy in in all aspects. And how do you get that from like Wikipedia? Yeah, absolutely. Like, where are these people doing research? You know, <laughs> I like that a lot. Like what you said about how music writing is basically about what's around the music because it's true. Like these days, there's mm -hmm. no fucking point in like describing a song because everyone can just go hear it right away. 
Like, yeah. And I mean, how many like buttery and blubbery and fat and all, how many words can you squeeze out exactly, you yeah. know, to describe it? it? It's, it really is about now. It's really, especially the pop sphere. I was talking to my friend about this the other day and just did an interview now that's unfortunately embargoed, but it, it's about all the idea of pop music and how it used to be one thing and have, you know, people just singing about like love lost and I don't know what people sang about. And now it's really kind of observational art. Right. It's like uh, pop artists are writing about what they see around them. And if you can't relate, that's okay. Just don't write about it. Yeah. In the sixties, they didn't have the technology yet to think of cool songs. Everything was just about holding hands and shit. Now (laughs) you write a song about Yoda smoking weed and it's like way next level, you know? (laughs) But, um, I think, uh, I like what you were saying too about like actually it helps to like be in the place where the music is coming from to understand it. Cause I think that's, what's so funny about like, we love just like mm. talking shit on pitchfork reviews cause it's easy and it's fun to do. But like, it's so mm. true that the pitchfork reviews kind of embody um, that style you're talking about of just like sitting in New York somewhere and saying that, Oh, this mm. album has crystalline synths. It doesn't tell you anything about those people or where they come from. Right. Like it's just yeah. pointless navel gazing. And I, and, the, and, you know, I have to say, I do love Pitchfork. I've written for them. I love, uh, like, Gillian Mapes is amazing. She's an editor there. And Ryan Domble. Like, there's so many good people there. And they really do try and um, commission articles. Just like many of the publications that I've chosen to write for, they try to commission articles to people who are close to the ground. But when you have such an influx of, of journalists, and I'm sure Alex... Charles, you you can all talk to this. There's a huge amount of us. It's so overwhelming that how do you really know if the person is close to it or if they've just read a bunch of books? Like, how am I, how do I stand out? Like me saying that I'm South African, I've traveled the world, I've, I mean, my scope is gigantic. It's not enough of a sell anymore because those people in the high rises, it's cheaper to not do the reporting on the ground. Yeah. That's it's true. cheaper just to have that dude stay in New York and not fly across the world to, you know, whatever is happening on the ground in Ghana, you know, or you know, like some, some, some place. Well, That's, it's access. You know, it's, I name Ghana because there's lots happening there, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's total <laughs> access to information. It's, uh, you know, you can, for instance, uh, write, an article about like the new music scene in St. Petersburg, right. And never Mm. ever go there because you can read English translated blogs about like, uh, what's happening, what the shape of it is. You can read a Wikipedia entry Mm. on St. Petersburg and try and cobble together something, you know, uh, Right. And and you, and I think you don't have to pay locals or you don't no. have to pay for pe- people to go there. And you don't have to worry about language barriers. Like it's such a it's such a ridiculous way of going about it, which is again which kind of leads to the conversation of alt weeklies and independent newspapers yeah. and magazines folding because the reason why they're not getting the funding that they need because people would rather go online and read a Vanity Fair article about a local musician done in like a kooky way with them like you know in this hip-hop styling and jumping you know like this these cool like gq style shoots are happening across the board so they can like exoticize and romanticize things that are outside of their scope in a very convincing way like even i'm sometimes convinced right even i go and like i'm like oh wow how does that person know about this (laughs) 
genre and then i like google them and they're like in minnesota or like in wisconsin or like born in wisconsin or you know whatever right and so it's it's so it's it's a really fine line i think it's it's interesting to mention the death of the alt weeklies because that i mean we were talking about uh people in new york writing about say international music scenes Mm. but with with alt weeklies evaporating you are losing uh you're losing sort of a chronicling of a of a local domestic scenes you know i know i know that definitely happened here in montreal with the death of the montreal mirror mm-hmm. um you know there's there's no one really on the ground uh taking taking stock of of micro sort of micro genres or micro movements or chronicling yeah chronicling mm-hmm. a, a city's music scene and maybe the idea is that the the sort of that absence is filled by people talking on social media, you know, like like talking amongst themselves about about the local scene. Right. But no one is no one is really uh, chronicling it in a way. I mean, Chicago Reader does quite a wonderful job. That's yeah, the one. Cool. I don't like. Obviously, I'm here on the ground, so it affects. I read it. Um, but just knowing that I miss so much and they pick up so much, I just know exactly how much work they're putting in. Like you can measure it because they it's not that they get first access, it's that they're actually out there looking as opposed to I feel like a lot of publications now are reactionary right. to music trends. They're not really trying to go out and like actually ask people on the ground hey what what are you doing why are you doing it how how does it affect you i think a lot of yeah a lot of places just don't even know how like again i would use pitchfork as an example where like in the 2000s pitchfork actually like found bands and made them they like helped bands careers and stuff now pitchfork is completely reactionary where like they're just you know a lot of the time they're just promoting super popular artists already like drake or something you know what i mean like they don't really know where the trends are anymore like they're rising. They're rising is is quite robust. But again, I think that if you, because I've worked as an editor as well, and if you on that side, the clickability, if that's even a word, of those rising articles versus somebody well known is drastic. Right. So you you're also looking at the editorial decisions made based on SEO clicks, yeah, and advertising traffic. money. So you yeah. also have to look at so. I think this is why this is such a gigantic conversation is because you're asking one question that really unravels when you start looking deep into it because it's it's kind of just exactly why everything feels like it's on fire. That's uh, journalism and media is exactly the same. Yeah, it's in the same that's part. a great point that, yeah, like SEO optimized clickable bullshit to make ad, like to bring in ad revenue has so many perverse mm. incentives and it does mm. um, sort of, it's part of, yeah, it's, I don't know, maybe I'm just reiterating here now, but it's kind of part of the problem we're describing of the incentive is to kind of push those new artists off the front page and put the most popular artists on earth on the front page just to be like, oh, good, we'll get clicks, you know? And then, like, be kind of, like, weirdly, what's the word? Like, a little bit um, uh, convoluted about it, I suppose. Yeah. So, you know, when, when trans rights started becoming a buzz, I was getting PR pitches from publicists with ex-artist, trans, transgender artists talking about m- mental il- illness. They were like pitching me that as the topic, which again is so problematic, right? Because you cannot tokenize, you, you cannot tokenize that. Uh, it's yeah. not a hook anymore. Like what what is a news hook and what isn't a news hook? 
and I think that that comes into the conversation as well is because the editorial, like who is making the decisions if you don't have a good idea of what's happening on the ground? You know, you're just looking and going, oh, I, people click on this today. They want to talk about mental illness and mental health. Um, and then that band is unfortunately kind of diluted into just that. And for me, I'm not going to, again, it's like I'm not going to cover. If you're telling me that this artist is a woman and I must cover her, that 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 for me, that woman I can tell you is not happy about that, ti- that title. Yeah, you it's know? very tokenizing. Yeah. I th- I, th- right. I think that's something that's happened with, uh, you know, like I, r- I really love the new Orville Orville Peck record. Oh my god! Yes, and I, I love him. And, yeah. And you know he's a he's a label mate, and uh, I've got some friends in his backing band. But I I imagine it's got to be frustrating for him when he's made this amazing album, and then every single article about the record is focused mm-hmm. on his sexuality and the way it plays with our conception of country music. And after a while, that hook has got to get, you know, pretty, pretty stale. Like, mm. like you could, you could tell that, that people are, you know, who's ever doing these, these pieces are, they're being given talking points. And that's and like, that's the easiest angle to take, I think. Like, I think mm, back yeah. to when uh, the last Mitski album came out, and there yes, was a lot of buzz around her, example. and every article was just like, she's Asian, and she's also a she, woman. <laughs> and, like, they're not even talking about the music. Right, and especially, that's, like, the best example, because she is so supremely talented. Yeah. She is so supreme, and she happened to come around at the same time as, like, you know, uh, Angel Olsen, Sharon Van Etten, the, the, you know... Uh, Lucy, all of them, Phoebe Bridges, it's like they were all put into that one blob, this like globule. I don't know what you call it, but that's a good, yeah, that's a really good example. But how do you, just out of interest, how do you all then, why do you click on something? Because I think that's kind of intriguing for me. Like, why would you click on an artist or a name that you don't know? Yeah, that's a good question. I usually don't. Yeah, why? Why don't you? I don't know, because so many of them are uh, not worthwhile. You eventually just give up. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, like, I think <laughs> when I was younger... Alex, really? <laughs> you, you believe that? Yes. I think, I think that's fair. There are a lot of bands out there, a whole lot of bands. It's funny, like, because I went through a phase when I was younger you where the time. I was He's more open yeah. to discovering things from all kinds of sources... And now I feel like with how fragmentary everything is, I've returned to this way of just listening to stuff that my friends tell me to listen to. So right. it's almost, I'm so almost word of mouth. back to like so how it used exactly. to be pre-internet, you know? Like Yes, yeah. and looking at music discovery in that light, like it's almost like the bubble has burst. There is too much information. And now you're going back to getting a pen and a paper out at a bar or at a restaurant, which I did the other day. Yeah, absolutely. When someone's whispering this band in my ear and I'm like, fuck yes, how am I going to remember it? I don't ever want to put it in my phone because suddenly I'll start getting Instagram ads about it. And, you know, because like you're just being tracked everywhere. And but that's a that's a really good point. I think it's how how are people listening and why are they listening and why do they even want to listen because there's so much out there. I suppose that's the conundrum for a band. Not my it's that's not my challenge. But you know, 
Yeah, I think I there's mean, even more choice fatigue now that most people are on mm. Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Like, even yeah. compared to the old days when it was, like, downloading torrents or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's just so easy to find new stuff that, like, it, you go down that rabbit hole of trying to listen to new stuff and, like, it, it just never ends. There's no limit to it. It's true. Mm. I mean, for me, I I try and absorb as much... Like, I have to make a point of listening to new music. Otherwise, you know, I'm just going <laughs> to just gonna end up listening to Hex Induction Hour over and over again or whatever it is. Yeah, totally. Whatever, the same way these days. whatever my brain is personally, like, locked into for those <laughs> yeah. three or four months. But <laughs> but one thing I've, I've really enjoyed is, and I haven't seen it in too many places, but uh, I think The Quietus is a good example. A column like... Mm. Tristan Bath's uh, spools out the the ta- mm. the tape column or the new weird Britain column. I forget who does mm-hmm. that. I know that if I go to if I, if I you know spend take twenty minutes out and just read through it, that I'm going to find at least one great thing because I I trust those people's taste, um, right. which kind of runs counter to the sort of horde of freelance journalists writing about you know a a million different bands it's kind of hard to wade through that a curated column by somebody you Mm. somebody whose trust you taste or somebody whose taste you trust is i don't know that works for me like i I love reading those columns like i I look forward to them you know yeah but then you look at what what the um how that column came about what is the nature of that site like that's one of the first places i started writing for because i had the same affinity toward music than they did you know luke and john who run the site they run it it's it's a labor of love you know they they haven't essentially quote unquote sold out yeah but how sad is it to know that if you that to get the kind of quality you're looking for it has to be from a smaller blog someone who's struggling like at the bottom you know yeah why why can why can doesn't it like it almost doesn't make sense that a big huge publication or conglomerate like Condé Nast or what have you they have all the resources in the world to do proper boots on the ground coverage but yet you're getting kind of universal diluted ideas yeah. right yeah it's you're totally, getting you're getting a froth basically it, it it's, gets back uh, to what you're saying yeah. about like the incentives to make money are so perverse that you can't do good work at the top anymore. So all the good work is and being you, done in the middle, exactly. but everyone's poor doing it, you know? Exactly. And that's the truth is that like there have been an I like in all transparency in the beginning, I wasn't earning a cent when I was writing for the quietest because they it was a labor of love. They didn't have anything. Right. And then slowly people started contributing kind of like the Guardian-esque thing where you give what you, yeah, you know, you yeah. donate. And then they would pay and they paid me instantly because they knew I was, you know, and this was like back in the day when I was first starting out. Um, I don't condone obviously not paying creatives and, you know, nobody wants to get into that discussion. But the truth is, is that you do it because you love it and you know that you're not writing for other writers. You're writing for, for people who are listeners, music fans, For sure. you know, so the tone of the site is, I don't know. Yeah. It's such a good example. I love, I love the quieter so much. It, it's such a great example. It reminds me of, uh, you know, reading, old alternative press when I was younger and, and that being my lifeline to, uh, not, you know, unpopular music or underground music. 
Like just being able to read a, a, a well-crafted description of a band by someone who is totally into them is mm. exciting to me, you know, on all levels, like makes me want to write music, makes me want to listen to it. And that, that definitely gets flattened out in, in sites like, well, the more popular, you know, music sites. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, something you just touched on there about like the funding model of like the guardian and you're saying quietus is doing it too of, I'm a fairly big fan of that. And actually uh, speaking of Chicago, like, you know, block club Chicago does that now where Oh my God. So people good. just pay like five bucks and they don't have any big like corporate backers so they can actually do good work, you know? But how great is Block Club Chicago? Yeah, it's I great. mean, it's I awesome. literally go there for all of my news. Yeah, it's like it's, actual uh, real neighborhood by neighborhood journalism that has, it's not beholden mm-hmm. to anybody but the readers, you know? It's great. No, and then if you look at the, and like, sorry to sound like a little bohemian here, but if you look at the heart of it, like, you can feel that when you read it, right? Totally, yeah. I, 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 I think, Alex, you mentioned earlier, like, we just have this so much information and all this, these choices. And I feel like if you're reading something that's really going to grasp you by the neck, by the heart, by the hair, you you want that. You want to almost, I want to be all consumed because I have so many other options. I don't want to be clicking around, although I do land up doing that. But I'd like to read an article from start to finish, at least in one sitting. And that sometimes is hard. Even as a journalist, it's it's hard to do. Yeah, sure. it's, it's nice to have... Uh like outlets for stuff that you can just trust where you know everything from there is going to be good and it has a personality. It's not yeah. just a generic mm. publication. And that's part of the reason why it was so sad what happened to Deadspin. Oh, because absolutely. Yeah. They did have a, a brand where people <laughs> actually went there to read stuff and then they tried to turn it into just a generic clickbait banner ad thing. Yeah. That might actually be the most perfect example of what we're talking about. Yeah, of like, definitely. they tried to take Deadspin to the next level by ruining it, you know? Yeah. And that's just what yeah. happens oh, at that top level. You, it has to be garbage to reach like the very apex of popularity. You know what I mean? And look how everybody stood stood for what they believed in. Yeah, right? that was that's great. That's also one of those revolutionary moments. Like, uh, it's like a I, I don't know. I've never seen something like that happen, and it was all happening digitally through like Twitter. You were just watching people virtually and digitally walk out. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, from our sides. And you were just seeing this like beloved. I used to, I mean, I don't even follow sports and I used to read Deadspin every day. Yeah, that was the great irony much. is that the best stuff was the non sports stuff. And then for the leadership to come in and be like, oh, it's got to be sports only is. But I also quite like their sports coverage for somebody who doesn't like sports like yeah, me. Yeah. Like they still were like, hey, come over here. Come sit here on my lap and we can read this. Like not maybe sit on my lap, but like because <laughs> that sounds predatory. But, you know, like so you know, it was very welcoming and inviting. And that I think like is something I don't know. I don't want to speak f- for you guys, but it's something that I really need. And that is what an alt weekly and an independent publication managed manages to get. They, it's not only inviting and welcoming, but it has heart. Like it's got substance. Yeah. You know? And it should, you know, the voices should make you care about whatever you're writing about. You know, like Deadspin, probably the only publication that made me give a shit about reading an article about baseball, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Oh my god! Is Deadspin even like I haven't even visited it since every, I'm actually it's, gonna go and look. I, th- I think it's what over. Been, what's happening? They've pivoted here? to porno. 
Oh. It's now a porno site. <laughs> Paul, uh, Paul Maitland, who I think is recently, or at least a month ago, I think he stepped down, he quit. But for a while, He's posting everyone, all the porno himself of him. Yeah, he's, posting, <laughs> he's, he's posting all the links himself. He was writing for a while, and uh, it, was, it was like a zombie version of Deadspin. I, uh, my impression was that when he was writing, it was like literally like two or three sentence articles, right? It would be yeah. like a video and two sentences. Mm. <laughs> That's right. It says here, G- Geo's media, Jim Spanfeller holds first post Deadspin meeting, gets blasted by union. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's a headline that I just The most read. recent article is November. So yeah. they just bought the website oh, wow. and it's just dead now. They just Yeah, it's just sitting there. What a waste of it's money. It's so sad. The one, it's, such a waste, it's such a waste of talent, money, ideas, everything. The one sad thing for me, I mean, maybe this is controversial, but one, one kind of sad thing for me about that's been um, watching it fall apart was they do have a really strong union. And I think a lot of the people that wrote for Deadspin had, you know, individual voices that were, or like for lack of a better word, brands, uh, you know they were uh, they were characters, uh, and and to watch them all kind of quit individually, and I thought you know maybe there's an alternate timeline where uh, all of these people banded together in the union and and actually wrested control of Deadspin from from Paul and uh, and Jim. <laughs> but yeah, I don't that know. would have been ideal for sure, but. Uh, yeah. I think the reality is they're just powerless to actually do it. And you're right, though. Mm-hmm. That is the ideal of how it should be run, for sure. I mean, yeah. And I think their individual popularity and people commenting, you know, kind of pushed like in, like individual resignations in public. Uh, yeah. But it's, it, I mean, I got to say, it is nice to see like David Roth, for instance, is continuing to publish. Like, yeah, is it great, like New Republic and stuff? Yeah, yeah. great work. And, yeah, I don't think, look, I think uh, that's kind of interesting to say that like writers are becoming characters now because there was definitely like you could hear the voice because there is so many, there's so many journalists around. You almost have to become that character on Twitter or in the writing itself. And so I definitely don't think, I don't think the, all of these people are so talented. I just saw threads and threads of other um, editors at different magazines just saying, hey, if you were laid off or if you left, pitch me. Yeah. You know, so there's solidarity, definitely. But it's just unfortunate that it has to, that it had to come to that, you know. It's true. For sure. I think this is only like halfway related, but I'm kind of thinking of a take here. That's like when everything is so saturated, it puts a premium on uniqueness. Uh, even above like goodness sometimes, right? Where <laughs> like it, it applies both to writers and to bands where oh, yeah. the more unique you are, the more you'll get like noticed when well, there's just is, so much going on, right? Like This is just a, like a like a constant thing. I, I mean, from the music industry side, like it is really not enough just to make quote unquote like a good record or no. good songs, which no. is something personally, you know, uh, playing in Wolf Parade and, and operators that I hear constantly from management and labels, you know, like there've been three or four meetings about the new Wolf Parade record. <laughs> it's been like, we need a hook beyond like a good rock band makes another good record. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they're really serious about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, it kind of sucks. <laughs> 
Even writing about your band, Dan, that's the exact, that's a great example. Like I luckily have already obviously got you in the cycle right. and we've already done our interview, but that's also because it's working with my friend who I love and adore who started an independent magazine that's just like won their first award in the first year because they're doing such good work. And that, so that like for me to get that sold wasn't hard right. because it was just like, this music's great. Let's do it. And so it depends on where you're selling it. But most places, um, and I'm only speaking for the places that I write for, you need a, a really compelling pitch that doesn't just involve the music. You need a news hook. You need a time peg. Like, are they going to be in the city? Are they touring? Is there an album out? What's the plug? And then you also need a, a reason as to why you're good for writing that story. Right. Like, I need to sell myself as well within the context of that so it's very it's very it's very overwhelming it's a lot it's of like, <laughs> it's a lot of boxes to tick to talk about a band and i guess i guess you know we were talking earlier like the big question is what what is the function of music journalism now or is it multifaceted you know <laughs> Did you hear that sigh? Yeah, um, <laughs> I know it's a big that's a big question, but we're talking we're talking about click through yeah. ad revenue, and then and then just like also. Look, I don't know. I think the this entire decade has been a it's, there's been a huge shift in music gen journalism. Obviously, in my opinion, like coverage is definitely based on a younger generation of fans. You know, they definitely focus on matters of identity, who the person is. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of that tied to the story of music journalism, and that's again has changed multiple times whilst I've been a journalist in this field um critic uh, crit is not really telling you what to listen to and why they're telling you the the context of why the culture you know they're talking right. about the culture surrounding that kind of what we touched on earlier and that it isn't just about the music so um, but th there's fewer outlets that want that so so you're basically writing pieces on, or you're getting criticism that's uh, why X musical product is a is a representation of Y culture, right? And um, a lot of a lot of the work I find now is like, I mean, journalism writing, all of that kind of stuff, music related or not, you confront you confronting taboos within you, right? As a writer, you 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 everyone has a at least one story to tell and when I first started I wasn't like in the I wasn't in the mindset of like I am uh you know good enough to talk about me so there wasn't me in the story if you read any of my work it's it's very rare that there's an I in there right because I was at service to the profile or to the band or to the story and I'm finding now more than ever because of the influencer culture that's seeping into music journalism because of branding and advertising need needing to kind of bolster revenue. Um, the writer needs to be in there now more than ever. I just wrote a piece and I put myself in there. It was the most awkward situation. I hated it. <laughs> I hated every moment. Um, it's an art to, to write about yourself. It's really... Um, and I, I, I've, it's not that I haven't relied on myself. I need me in there, but I've, I was always right, kind of in the position of I want to know 
about I'm telling your story. I'm here for you, you know? Right. Um, so I think that's shifting. I think music journalism is definitely shifting in that right. Like people want like Twitter beef wars and like they want to start shit with artists and, you know, an artist can clap back like immediately from a crit now and go directly to the source. Like what Lana Del Rey did to the beloved Ann Powers a oh, few yeah. months ago, you know? And I think that like if, you, if you're asking like what is music journalism for, I don't know. I think like maybe the question is like, what isn't it for? I don't, I don't right. know like, what, what, you know what I mean? Because it's kind of all encompassing now. It, it isn't good enough just to be a writer. You have to be a podcaster, a photographer. You've got to be that monkey who's got all of the symbols and the drum kits around him clapping away. Um, and that's a lot, right? That's, that's a lot. Like it's, it's not very nice to to kind of stretch yourself out like that. Um, I think it's similar for artists too, because, exactly. you know, you were expecting, yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of what was traditionally the job of a record label's PR team has now been offloaded onto, onto artists, which is something we've mm -hmm. talked about on the podcast before. But, mm. but, you know, you are expected to constantly be engaged with fans, which is easy and, you know, pretty fun most of the time but you're also expected to do the job of what is traditionally the domain of like a pr team you know mm -hmm. if you're in chicago you've got to be cross-posting with the venue about mm -hmm. your show in chicago and making sure it's getting to more than just the people yeah more than just the the people that are following you so which is i mean incredibly time consuming <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's it's devoid of what you were there in the first place, right? Yeah. So it's taking you out of yourself where the true onus is actually on you um, being as authentic as possible and really honing in on your craft. Instead, because of the culture of freelance and the hustler nature of it all, you are having to do everybody else's job and be very good at it. Yeah. Like, I am fucking terrible at Twitter because if I ever thought I just blurted out to my dog or talk to a stranger or call my friend, you know? So I'm very bad at articulating my thoughts to, to, to a, on a platform like that. Other people, it like is literally how people survive. You know, they, they get jobs through having a personality on Twitter and you almost as a writer and a music journalist, you're almost expected to do that now. And for people like me, and I know there's many others like me, it's very hard to do that. And that's just one example, obviously. I'm not going to like shit talk Twitter because it's, yeah. I, I'm jealous. I'm <laughs> jealous of, of, you know, people who have that ability. Yeah. Um, to some extent, like for episode one, we're lucky for like my other podcast mm, that we yes. have a large enough audience that's sort of naturally built through Twitter and stuff that we don't really have right. to make that many concessions. Like we don't really have to like chase press or like do some of this like, you know, shit that we don't want to do. But it also means there's a lower ceiling because like, you know, mm. when, when you kind of like don't do that stuff, it lowers the, the ceiling, I guess. But I think that we don't really want to become extraordinarily popular or something anyway. What do you mean by lowers the ceiling? Um, in what terms of like the, the maximum size of the audience is only so large, right? And the amount of money you can okay. make is only so large. 
But you can't scale in that light. But I, I would almost think that having that cult and loyal following would help oh, you. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, it's very freeing. I, th- I think basically we're lucky to have the situation we have, but it, it comes with like its own set of trade-offs or something. Yeah. Um, I, I feel the same way about uh, Wolf Parade and operators. I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, there's uh, Wolf Parade is never going to crack into commercial FM radio ever. You know, it's just not going to happen and there's a so strange and there's a core group of but but we've kind of developed a core group of fans that Mm. enjoy what we do always be there yeah and they you know they come to every single show or travel around yeah i think i I wonder for me that's sustainable that that is sustainability yeah exactly that's what i think about a lot is just how do we sustain this thing basically Oh that's like God. the point, you know, yeah. Isn't that a little bit depressing? Like, is that a little bit depressing or am I just in a bit overly Maybe a little person? bit, but I think I, that's the way to go where, like, if your goal <laughs> is to just grow endlessly, then you're part of the problem, too. You know what I mean? Like, right. you like, kind of want to have, like, a sustainable right. core and, like, make it work. I don't and know. And you have to love what you do, yeah. right? Because yeah, people yeah. will sniff it out. Like, I know when I get a press release from a band, I know that that band doesn't even know what's being written about them. They probably just, like one of those industry plants because there's so many of them, you know, and, and and you can sniff it out. You can sniff out that they're not really there to actually do the work. They're just there to get famous or I don't know. This is all very unusual for me as well, I have to say, because I didn't grow up idolizing celebrities in the same light that America and people in the UK do. For sure. So like we didn't have celebrities just like, oh, I went to the coffee shop the other day and bumped into... I don't know, Winona Ryder. Or right. <laughs> I don't know why I said Winona Ryder. But you know what I mean? Like, it's. I think that also affects um, why people get into things. Like, how do you know if somebody is authentic or not? Or doing, I don't know, am I just being super paranoid? No, I mean, I that, really that question of authenticity is, is like a central question to uh, promoting bands now. And, you know, with, I guess Lana Del Rey is a good example. Um you know, the idea that Lana Del Rey came out of nowhere was ca- right, exactly. carefully crafted by the by her record label. And then the counter argument to that is that authenticity doesn't matter in 2019. That it's mm-hmm. an antiquated kind of 90s idea. But to me, this gets oh god, it matters to, more than ever. Yeah, yeah. it gets yeah. back to what we were saying earlier about like trust and stuff. Where when mm-hmm. there's so much stuff out there, you start just going with whoever you trust. And so it ends up creating these like more personal networks of just like, oh, I trust this person and this person. So do you Um, think that's why podcasting is so popular? Because you are kind of almost because when I listen to to, when I listen to the podcast, I listen to I will I will probably buy a Casper mattress or something like I am one of those people. (laughs) Like I will I I won't buy it, but I'll think of buying it. Like you've you've I I would almost feel like you aren't part of the problem, but that's also kind of. The issue, right, is that it's it's so intimate podcasting, and it's become that way. It's almost it's jumped on that authenticity train um, because it does feel like you're you're sitting and just like listening to your friends talk sometimes. Well, at least the shows I listen to, I don't really listen to like true crime podcasts. Right. I just listen to comedy. Yeah, for sure. True crime mostly. podcasts are the worst ones. Oh my god! Why do everybody love them? Why? Why? I just don't understand. I mean, some of that stuff is interesting, but it's just so oversaturated. 
And, and the so, fact that and, they're and, always like loaded yeah. with ads for mattresses and electric toothbrushes yeah. <laughs> and stuff while they're talking about like people being dismembered and like none of the yeah. money goes to the victim's <laughs> family. It's like. It, it, yes, it's akin to like a, one of those ads for like antidepressant uh, or like uh, anti-allergy medication on, on the TV. It's like this person running through like a, a field and then they're like. But you may, there's the causes that you might, might die one day or, you know, be careful. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that's exactly how I feel with true crime podcasts. It's just, but they're also like pseudo intellectual, right? It's like tapping into this NPR market where they, I don't know. I personally love to listen to a 24 part podcast on the Armenian genocide and think about buying razors. Uh, (laughs) This is kind of a pivot, but it's. Um, getting back to Dan, what we were talking about when we were talking about just like having a core audience and like sustaining a project and stuff. I'm kind of curious what you think of this little pet theory of mine, Dan, that like, I think in order for any project to like take off, it takes like a certain amount of dumb luck and you can't really control it. I agree. (laughs) Once you have something going, there's certain decisions you can make. And I would argue, and I wonder if you feel this way too, that with something like Wolf Parade, I think the level that you guys are at reflects your own personalities and ethos, right? Like the reason you're not on FM radio is because you guys aren't the kind of guys who really truly want that deep down. I think Mm. does that make sense? I would. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I mean, I think when the band started, we made like what at the time some of us thought were, bad or misinformed decisions about like engaging with popular culture. Mm. But in the long run, I think it's totally paid off. Like if we had have gone from the first album to say working with a, you know, a really good producer uh, in a remote location to do the next record and building off of the first record, I think things, I, I think our career would not be in as good a place it is now. Because what we did yeah. was we bought a bunch of we dumped a bunch of money into recording equipment and made like a difficult psych rock record and in the long run it paid off so yeah yeah that's I think, a good point like if you made the second record with like a big name producer and shit it probably would have had like a very short term positive effect yeah and a long term but it would have taken you to a place you don't want to be yeah uh, yeah it would have had a long term cooling effect and I think that like I've I've seen that happen with tons of bands from from that sort of class of 2005 mm. you know who many many of those bands don't make music anymore they're done yeah uh, for sure maybe they own houses but <laughs> well it's just because their relevancy yeah exactly they're probably rich yeah like their relevancy is like stuck in that era and it's kind of frozen in time where most genres are now interlocking and intertwined mm-hmm. so you are a big artist now if you can make every aspect you know every type of music or you can just kind of what's the what's the phrasing like rise with the tide or i don't know what the phrase is but like roll, you know roll with the tide roll, roll with the tide <laughs> yeah. ships rising tide i don't know yeah. but yeah i totally agree it's such a good point though because i, I suppose what uh, happens then to the idea of like selling out because i don't really like that term i definitely think indie artists deserve to be able to make money how they how they want to and but often there's that backlash if you are an indie artist making indie music, whether it's rap or rock or what have you, 
and you, you know, sell your music to a commercial, how else are you meant to live now? I mean, yeah, you don't have a choice because you don't have a choice. Yeah, because you've got, you know, everybody knows you have to tour to make money. Uh, so everyone is on tour and you're not getting paid for people listening to your music. You're not getting paid for stream. I mean, just as an example, uh, mm. yesterday, Davoika and I were going over sound exchange royalty statements for operators. Uh, there's a Spotify column. One of the songs off the new record got streamed 2 million times what? in this time period. And we wow. got somewhere in the neighborhood of 560 American dollars, <laughs> <laughs> which is like, and, and like, uh, I immediately wanted to post about it, but then I, but then I, why didn't you? Because, uh, if you, I mean, I, we had Zola Jesus on, uh, yes, a couple episodes ago. She time. talks about it a lot, yeah. but if you look at her posts about how unfairly artists are paid for Spotify, She's always got these like um actually guys, and they're always dudes. It's always men. Always re replying to her. <laughs> yeah. and Reply guys, yeah. Who people who are not, men who are not musicians basically saying, uh, you know nothing. A, your math is wrong. You actually made five hundred and eighty dollars. So yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, so stick there. with the facts. Yeah. Uh, or B, uh, well. You know, uh, can you put a monetary value on exposure? Because that means, you know, so many more people listen to your song. So many more people are aware of you. Oh, you, my God. Or like my favorite response, which is, I yeah. pay $10 a month for Spotify. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, wait. So, just to go. So, you you would rather not engage just because you know how sucked in, like, quicksand you'll get? Or is it that you just you just don't want to continue that conversation and it's pointless. Uh, I think it like hearing the replies depresses me in a way that I, I don't think I'm, <laughs> I don't think I want to deal with <laughs> this month at least, you know, I, and I would yeah. rather, I would rather have that conversation in a different format. I don't want to have like a, you know, a, a Twitter conversation. I like using Twitter to complain you. about Ukrainian fascism. You yeah, know, I know. like <laughs> I, know. I, I know, I follow yeah. you. Yeah, no, but I, I, I think it's I, why I'm asking a question. I don't have an answer. I'm just kind of curious, and I wonder about when do we step in about this conversation? Because it's so there's so many issues with the streaming age that you can. It's almost embarrassing to talk about now. It's as boring to talk about as when we got cell phones and people like ah the technology it's taking over you know yeah. it's a it's a really kind of stale conversation already and that's terrible and because for me it's such a depressing aspect of my job that i have for years kind of sublimated and and processed mm -hmm. that to reopen it on a weekly basis just feels like regressive you know Unless there's a unless there's a sort of industry wide solidarity movement to uh, push back against royalty rates or find a different way to disseminate music that gets more of the income going to the artists, it it's mm -hmm. almost like you said it's almost not even worth talking about it at this point. It's called title. Yeah, yeah, baby. Yeah. <laughs> they fixed the problem. <laughs> they fixed it. <laughs> Yeah, I come into it from the mindset of like, 
Like when we put up the E1 album, I was like, let's just treat it like we're going to make nothing so that when we make something, it feels like it, it will be so oh, cool. You know? <laughs> so depressing, though, dude. I know. It's so depressing. <laughs> but I totally understand that. But also it kind of lends to what we were talking about earlier in, in music journalism, because then you look at places like Bandcamp, who has the most phenomenal editorial uh, editorial staff. Yeah, yeah. Who I love. Yeah. I've worked really cool. with a few of them over the years. And also other sites that aren't on Bandcamp, they, instead of just posting and being lazy and just posting end of year recaps as a Spotify playlist, they actually posted ones with links to either the YouTube or the Bandcamp where you can directly buy or the artist's website where you can directly buy the music. And how sad is it that you have to, it's like hand-holding You've got to actually take the person because you know they're going to just stay on Spotify if you give them. It's like a drug. For sure, you know? yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I respect Bandcamp a lot for trying to like stick, a, like get around that. And Bandcamp too gives you, I want to say, like seventy percent of the money, which is like better than a lot of places. Better you know? than exactly. Um, yeah. Like yeah. Like I mean, if you sell like five albums on Bandcamp, is equivalent to tens of thousands of streams, which is fucking hilarious, you know. But like, do you? How do you guys listen to music? Do you listen on Spotify? Kidding. How do you listen to music? Do you, do you download? Do you do vinyl? I, what I, is your... It's it's more chaotic for me than ever where I literally do like everything. Like Yeah, me yeah. too. I, I download stuff. I stream stuff. I have... There's certain records I only have on vinyl and I don't have on my computer and vice versa, mm. you know? Like, yeah. it's just a complete mess. I can't like keep track of what I'm doing anymore. It's exactly the yeah. same for me. Like, I... I, I kind of... It's kind of grouped by genre, but uh, for sort of experimental stuff or... Anything from the Slavic world, weirdly, mm. uh, I will buy the record on Bandcamp. I'll listen to it on Bandcamp. I find Bandcamp's editorial department on like avant-garde music is amazing, and it always, mm. you know, leads me to some cool new band that I wouldn't have stumbled on had I not read, you know, uh, their breakdown of it. And then mm. everything else is either Spotify or vinyl. That's it. I have a big iTunes library, but lately, in like the last couple of weeks, I've been getting into Spotify, diving into the algorithm. It's been recommending me funk and disco, and I'm just... <laughs> what was your... <laughs> fully diving into it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, but wait, so it's... Because rec- what did you first listen? Like, how did it know what to... What did it jump on? Like, why is it doing funk and disco? I don't know what it was. What was the first thing that I... Because that I find fascinating, how this algorithm is absolutely... It's so it's so likened to your tastes now. I find it frightening. I think I just listened as my first song to I Feel For You by Shaka Khan, and it went from there. I mean, that's a jam. <laughs> That's a great job. I've broken. I, I'm just looking at what Spotify was recommending me, and I've yeah, I'm actually totally broken my own. I've, I've broken the algorithm. It's recommending me the uh, I, I uh, the Ron Burgundy podcast. <laughs> oh jeez. Uh, yeah, um, some Yugoslavian socialist disco that makes sense, and um, Hot Hits Canada. Oh my god! It doesn't know what I like. Of course it doesn't know what you like. You you don't even know what you like. I don't know what I like. I don't know what I like. I'm like, I've changed every single day. And when people rely on algorithms, it's a, it's exactly the testament to the time. And same with the political discourse. When you rely on something that is just fed to you and you don't question it 
and and look what's happened. Like we were almost promised this like utopia where technology was going to unite everyone and disintegrate borders and you know. But I think it all all it does is just talks to our like uh, capacity for horror. Yeah, <laughs> you know? true. It's kind of alienating like, too, where it feels kind of like lonely. Like you're in in theory, you're surrounded by more people than ever, but you're also just less connected to them. Which I think gets back to what we were talking about of like searching out sort of things you can connect to and just going into your own little corner and like withdrawing. And and also the people who are making the music, the people who are writing about the music, the people who are writing about pop culture, making movies, that kind of stuff. You're also, you're talking to them as well. So everyone for the first time in kind of history is all in the same pool, right? They're all in that same modern day conundrum of feeling general generally overwhelmed um i don't yeah that's how i feel just every day but there's just so much music there's so much there's so much happening um i sometimes don't even want to listen to music like when i it's like it's hard to even turn to it because i don't even know if it's gonna help me you know i don't know if it's gonna do what i what i used to use it for for sure. If that makes any sense. I don't know if I'm just rambling. No, that's a good point. It's. I think that's a reason why people are turning to podcasts to fulfill the same sort of emotional, sort of emotional satisfaction they might have gotten from an entire album, for instance, because because mm. listening to an entire album isn't really a thing anymore either, you know? So. I don't understand that so much time goes into sequencing and uh, that side of things that I'd really... There's so many concept albums that I just love from start to finish and then going back on loop. I just can't. Yeah, I'm definitely not a singles song type of person. I listen to full albums on shuffle as a sign of disrespect. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's the best way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) On shuffle. And you you can, like, hear it. Damn it. But there are there are some artists like Jamila Woods who came out with Legacy Legacy this year, which is one of my favorite albums. Um, she, she that that album is meant to be you meant to sit down and listen to it from start to finish. You can shuffle around, but the story is it just builds and builds. Um, so I, I guess it depends. It depends. Well, I feel like um, I, I still want to talk, uh, Lior, about like your experience in South Africa and Israel and how that relates to like music scenes there and stuff. So maybe mm. we'll kind of wrap up this little episode here and then um, talk about that stuff in a second. But do you feel like do you feel like you're going to leave listeners being like, but then what do I want? What can I do? <laughs> I feel like I'd not to, not to say I'm just. I would I would be so interested in what you all think is the way forward. Not I don't want a solution because I'm not asking like solve the problem of the music industry, but like maybe what is a tip? I think that could be quite interesting to like sure. talk about or just quickly visit like a tip that you do. I mean earlier we touched on like word of mouth yeah. or you know because th- that yeah, I for think, me would be really interesting. I think to find out. I think like from an artist perspective like like directly supporting artists you like is extremely important. Like if you're, if they have stuff on Bandcamp, buy it from Bandcamp. Mm. You know, if they have Patreons, which a lot of people do now, you know, subscribe to their Patreon and go see them live and buy, you know, the physical product directly from them. 
buy t-shirts. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, buy merch. I, I don't know. Yeah. Buy merch. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then in terms of finding out about new things, I I think it's just you got to find someone with a voice you like to kind of help you cut through the chaff, like the mm. the wall of noise. If you can find a publication that you that you trust or a voice that you trust and just, you know, it's, I feel like with the amount of choice you have, it's actually work to sit down and read someone going through and separating that out for you, you know, but if you put in that work, it's, it's going to reward you with, you know, maybe finding a band that you love that you'd never heard about. It's so odd to talk about <laughs> in this way. Yeah. You know, it's very it's strange. Funny. It's like, I think, I'm sure. Yeah. It feels kind of like depressing that everything is really siloed off and fragmentary. But at mm. the end of the day, that's also like a natural reaction where, you know, like Dan's saying, it's, you should put more money into fewer artists as a fan just because, like, if you can actually support them and connect with that, then you kind of create mm. like a, a smaller number of more intimate relationships right, with you're artists localizing it yeah it just makes exactly. sense even though in some sense it's kind of depressing that it silos you off from so much stuff but i don't know but it's indicative of the culture it's like it's, it's exactly the same as you know if you have a movie theater near your house that you can walk to and or get to easily that has a membership program and you're not on what is that thing that died that um that movie subscription what was it called? Movie Pass. Movie Pass. Yes, exactly. Like, why do that when you can just support local? Like, is that may maybe what what I'm, what we're saying? We're all agreeing. It's like support local. I think that might have supported local theaters. I don't know. That was just like a um, a brief milking of venture capital. Yeah, for sure. It was like yeah. a downward transfer of wealth, just due to <laughs> dumb investing <laughs> decisions out. in a company yeah. that doesn't make sense. They'll just give it billions of dollars and people get free stuff while they're losing money. That's what we should do. We and need to awesome. trick venture capitalists into accidentally <laughs> blowing go. all their money on like, our go. stuff. On our stuff, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think Mark Andreessen <laughs> followed me at one point. Oh, did he really? <laughs> yeah, and then I probably said something about his head shape or something, and then he unfollowed me. <laughs> if See, one approach is to try to build like a following over time. Another approach would be to have just Mark Andreessen be really into your band, and he's like your one fan, and you could make a $100 million off of him, you know? Yeah. This is the, this is the kind of Renaissance-era wealthy patronage model <laughs> yeah, patronage, that, we, yeah, exactly. that we, need to, uh, we need to embrace as an artistic community, go. as as uh, Creators of the difficult arts. Yeah. When I sit down to write a song, I'm thinking, what would Mark want to hear today? <laughs> exactly. I mean, What's Mark Baby doing right now? Some of the now? greatest music yeah. in exactly. history was created uh, that way for just like inbred European monarchs. <laughs> That's just true, to personally yeah. please them and like people still like it today. So I don't know. We we need we need to adopt a Habsburg mindset to uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think we solved yeah. everything here. Uh, Mark Andreessen, get in touch. Yeah. Um, we'll make songs about you and for you every day if you want. <laughs> um, and Lior, thanks for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Bye. <laughs>